right. So first of all, thank you to Clara Boothloose uh, for having me here, and especially to Michelle Easton in the back. You guys are always so good to me. It's been a while since I've been here, but um, I love this organization. I think that you are all very well served to be here today and for the weekend, and I hope that you learn a lot and take a lot home and tell a lot of your friends about some of the things that you learned. Uh, thanks for having me here in Washington, D.C. I live in Virginia, a little more on that later. Uh, I was here the other day for a meeting in the Capitol building, and it's so nice to be around like-minded women because I saw a bunch of women just the other day uh, from NOW, the National Organization of Women. You guys are all very young, but you're probably familiar with NOW. And they were all up there protesting in favor of the Equal Rights Amendment, the ERA, right? And I just kept thinking about how little progress the left side of that movement has really made over the years in terms of their ideology. Because conservative icon Phyllis Schlafly, do you guys know who she is? If you're not familiar, uh, you should be. She unfortunately passed away in 2016, but she was a woman uh, of stature, an icon in the conservative movement for her philosophies, for her uh, academic voice, for her uh, standing up for conservative values, no matter what the critics were going to say about her. And she has lots of books and, and radio podcasts that you actually can listen to now, and so I, I definitely encourage you to do so. But she wrote one of the best-selling uh, conservative books of all time called A Choice, Not an Echo, which sold three million copies. And the reason I bring her up is because she beat those women 50 years ago, 50 years ago on the Equal Rights Amendment, and yet they're still up there protesting in favor of it today. Uh, and it just seems like to me they should probably move on to some other topics because it's been about five decades. So anyway, you're here today to get to know each other, to embrace your conservative ideology, and to listen to me talk a little bit about the Second Amendment, speaking of equalizers, right? ERA, Second Amendment, I'll take the Second Amendment any day. Now what I love about this country is that America offers each one of us individuality. Our uniqueness and our experiences distinguishes us in a positive way from one another and allows us to come together to share our different perspectives to gain a well-rounded, tolerant perspective about our fellow citizens. And the Second Amendment is no exception. So growing up, I guess you could say, I had a pretty traditional upbringing when it came to firearms. I'm from Arizona. Uh, it's the most gun-friendly state in the country. I know Texas, is anyone here from Texas? In the back? Proudly from Texas, of course, all Texans are, what's the saying? Everyone who is not from Texas wants to be from Texas, and everyone who's from Texas thinks Texas is the only state uh, in the union or something like that. Um, love Texas, but they oftentimes get credit for being the most gun-friendly state, when actually, according to the rankings, Arizona is the most gun-friendly state. So growing up, you know, my mom learned to uh, shoot from my grandpa, who was a dedicated advocate for the Second Amendment in the firearms industry, specifically the National Rifle Association for his entire life. My dad is a knowledgeable firearms guru. His, his gun room, as we like to say, he looks like an engineer. He has tons of binders about how to reload ammunition and how to do you know, all of these different things with firearms. It really is pretty incredible. Someday I need to sit him down and actually learn how to do that myself. Um, he's a big hunter. He bought me my first rifle for my 10th birthday and had KDP embroidered and cursive on the sling. And the next year, I went hunting for the first time when I was 11. And I was successful, and this is important, because at the time, I was the only female cousin in my family. And as you can imagine, my male cousins weren't too happy about being shown up that season by a girl, because 
the summer before, I had family in Wisconsin. We went back for a big family reunion. It was my 10th birthday. My birthday was on July 10th, so it was like the golden birthday. I was really excited. They ruined my birthday. Uh, they wouldn't let me play baseball with them because I was a girl. So that fall, I went out and showed them how to hunt like a girl. And I came home with a deer and an elk in the same weekend, and they came home with nothing. So I was pretty happy about that. But the point is that I learned at a young age how to respect firearms. It's all about respect, their power, their capability. And as I got older, my firearms focus shifted away from bolt-action hunting rifles, although I do still enjoy hunting. I just don't, unfortunately, have as much time to do it anymore. You know, the whole adulting thing, you got to get out in the world, be a contributing member of society, and hunting doesn't really do that much for me. It doesn't pay my bills, so unfortunately, I have to put that to the side sometimes. Um, but my focus shifts to self-defense um, once I moved to college. And then ultimately, once I got out of college, I got into some kind of competition shooting just on the side for fun, nothing serious. And that's a really great way to get to know people in the industry and those who advocate for Second Amendment rights in their local communities, and local is everything. And I've also had the privilege of teaching a number of, of people how to shoot uh, a firearm for the first time, which is extremely rewarding and one of my favorite things to do. But while my, my experience with firearms comes first from my family, much like many of you probably, my passion for the Second Amendment and firearms is deeply rooted in American history, culture, and my love for this country. Uh, people tend to forget that American settlers were here for a long time, uh, nearly 200 years, and loyal to the King of England before the American Revolution started. So the question is, you know, why after so long did English rule come to an end? And why did the American Revolution start? And we all know it's for a number of reasons, but the two main reasons were taxes and firearms confiscation. We all know about the Boston Tea Party, right? Of course. Mm -hmm. But did, my, my dog's name is Gadsden, so obviously I know all about it. Um, but do you know about Williamsburg, Virginia? On the night of April 20th, 1775, in colonial Williamsburg, under the rule of King George III, the action of the British governor removing gunpowder belonging to the colony touched off revolution in Virginia. And without the colonists believing in the right to keep and bear arms at Lexington and Concord, we arguably wouldn't have a United States of America today. And after repeated attempts, by the British to confiscate colonial arms. The Second Amendment was written and solidified as part of the Bill of Rights uh, nearly two decades later. The Second Amendment is an issue that is constantly being debated. What are its limits? Some go so far as asking why is it even necessary, including a former Supreme Court justice. Um, but it's wrong, by the way. And I think it's important to go over what the Second Amendment actually says. A well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. So the Second Amendment was ratified in 1791 and written to the Bill of Rights as a way to prevent tyranny, and it's a right that's constantly under attack. And as someone who makes a living because of the First Amendment, I truly believe there's a reason the Second Amendment is right behind it. But the beautiful thing about the Second Amendment, just like all of the rest, is that it applies to everyone regardless of your race, your religion, or your gender. But as a woman, I believe the Second Amendment is a crucial tool for empowerment, self-protection, and choice about how we determine to live our lives. More importantly, it's about how to protect our lives and those of the ones that we love. Long before women had the right to vote, they had a right to own a firearm. 
As a daughter of the American Revolution, I know it's an essential part of who we are as a country. God may have made man and woman, but as the old saying goes, Sam Colt made them equal. <laughs> and sure, birth control pills are, are great, but they don't really come in handy during a fight against a guy who's trying to kill you. And it will forever boggle my mind that rabid, rabid feminist groups, I'm sure you guys experience them on college campuses all the time, because that's where they fester, aren't telling their members, the students that they engage with, how to learn and carry how to learn how to use and carry a, a firearm. These are the same groups who scream about equality between men and women. I just saw it the other day up on Capitol. Yet dismiss one of the greatest equalizers of all. And ultimately, choice, one of their favorite words, is one of the biggest issues at the center here. We are not all the same. We live in different places, we have different needs. Whether you're a single mom living in a big city or a small town, in an urban or a rural area, whether you're a single mother trying to raise a child, a married woman who is interested in protecting her family, a mother or sister who's concerned about school safety. I have uh, this great book at home, it's a, a coffee book, and it's called Chicks with Guns by Lindsay McCrum. And I love it because it has this amazing photography, and it's probably about an inch thick, and it's one of those big books that you just want to pick up and drink your coffee and, and flip through, right? And I like it because it isn't about reading necessarily who these women are, but showing you who they are through these photos. And every photo shows the diversity of women in the firearms community. You know, the front of the book is a woman who's clearly a hunter, and she's sitting down with um, a deer that's on her wall. But there's another uh, picture in the book of a woman with a shotgun on one hip and a baby on the other, I think in somewhere like Kansas, right? There's other women who are police officers or um, you know, doctors who carry firearms on a regular basis as part of their, their daily activity. And it really just shows the diversity that we have, not just in the firearms industry, but with how women make this a part of their lifestyle. And so the Second Amendment is really for all of us. And unfortunately, it's more widely available to some, but not others, depending on where you live. I call Virginia the freedom side of the river for a reason, because once you cross the river north into Washington, D.C., your firearms rights essentially go out the window. It's the same thing in Maryland. Um, you have to be very careful about how you travel. Uh, I have a, a bracelet um, that's made by a company that, and it has a 22 shell, empty shell casing on it. And I technically can't wear that bracelet in Washington, D.C. because it's considered unregistered ammunition and they could charge me with a misdemeanor for just simply driving over a bridge. They think that I had become a criminal problem. Um, so that's an issue. You know, there was a, a story uh, out of Pennsylvania of a woman named Shanine Allen, African-American woman, single mother of two. Uh, she worked as a nurse and she worked off hours. So she would work, you know, get off work at three in the morning and she had a concealed carry permit in the state of Pennsylvania. And one day she was driving uh, during the day and she crossed over a bridge into New Jersey where the laws are very different than they are in Pennsylvania. She got pulled over for a traffic violation um, told the officer that the firearm was in her purse, didn't realize she had crossed into New Jersey, and then she was charged with a felony and threatened with prison. And uh, Governor Chris Christie eventually pardoned her, but the point is, here's this woman trying to make a living for her children, an honest living, she just wants to protect herself and her family, and yet these laws across state lines have put her in a position that not only would she be a victim if she didn't have her firearm, because she's working late at night as a nurse, 
Um, but she's also now put in this position where she's in legal trouble and now can no longer provide uh, for her family and her children. And so those kind of things really have to change in terms of policy and the things that we, you know, the positions that we put people in. Because uh, it's unfair that she had to get a, a, a pardon from the governor to get out of that when she was simply doing the right thing but telling the officer the truth when a lot of people probably would have just lied. Maybe would have gotten her in more trouble. Um, at CPAC this year, just to continue on this diversity line for a second, I did it, or last year, excuse me, uh, I hosted a panel with four women who have very different stories when it comes to their own firearms journey. I told you a little bit about mine, um, but each of them, you know, one of them is a sexual assault survivor. She was um, sexually assaulted in college in her apartment, and now she's a gun owner. Um, another woman on the panel um, heard the story of this other um, woman, her name's um, Kimberly Corbin, and decided that she was going to regularly carry a firearm because she was working as a lawyer late at night. And two weeks after she decided to start carrying her firearm, she was attacked in the parking garage by a man with a knife who said he was going to kill her. And she ended up shooting him and getting away. And now she was still pretty injured, but because of her decision to do that based on another woman's story, she was able to get out. Um, another woman, uh, Antonia Okafor, she's been working on uh, campus carry so that women are not put into positions of being victims just because there's a campus border. Um, and then another woman who I thought was really interesting, her name is Ashley Lundvall, and she is in a wheelchair. And so she advocates for women who have disabilities to have, you know, the rights to keep and um, bear arms for all of the reasons that she runs into um, with her own situation of being in a wheelchair, which puts her in more of a vulnerable situation than maybe other women that she knows. Um, on college campuses, where all of you walk around, right, um, men and women, but women in particular, um, have been put into a pretty vulnerable situation. Um, how many of you live on campus? How many of you live off campus? How many of you walk to campus? Drive to campus? Late night classes? Who has late night classes? So you walk in the dark alone? Okay. <laughs> um, many of you have night classes. It's part of life, right? It's part of campus life. You do what you gotta do. Um, I went to University of Arizona in Tucson. It's a dark sky city. There are no street lights anywhere. And I remember when I lived in Tucson, um, every other weekend someone's house was getting broken into. And oftentimes, I was alone living in a house due to summer school or roommates being gone, and I felt more comfortable at home knowing that if someone broke in, I could defend myself with a firearm because I was safe at home knowing that I had a firearm. And because I wasn't allowed to bring my gun to campus at the time, and not even being allowed to, ch to keep it in my car, they've changed it now where you can lock it in your car. I get home when it was dark, and getting in the door in the neighborhood, uh, you know, dark neighborhood was nerve wracking, and it was very obvious because people have been breaking into these homes on a regular basis, they were watching people coming in and out. Now luckily nothing ever happened, but it was certainly something that put into perspective where I could exercise my rights, and where I clearly could not exercise my rights. So, to compound this, one thing that I see in the culture, and especially in media, is the shaming of women who want to carry a firearm and exercise their Second Amendment rights, especially lately. Like, if you support the NRA, or if you support uh, the right to carry a firearm, you are not for, you know, you are essentially a murderer, and you have the same blood on your hands as a school shooter would. I mean, it's obscene the way that this debate has been carried out over the last three months. Um, but I'm here to tell you that there is no shame in exercising your Second Amendment rights and that you should be very proud if that's something that you choose to do. And the thing is that you're not alone. Women owning and carrying firearms is not a rarity, it's actually become the norm. 
We saw this recently with uh, University of Tennessee at Chattanooga graduating senior Brenna Spencer. Does anybody know her? You know her? Okay. Um, she posted a photo on her Twitter page showing how she carries a handgun concealed in her waistband. Good place to carry it, especially when you have jeans on. Um, this photo was immediately deemed controversial by what we call the blue check mainstream bubble media. And yet, to so many other people, it was a proud moment of exercising a necessary and normal part of everyday American life. And a lot of other people agreed, even though the chattering class thought it was controversial, it was inappropriate, she was being ridiculous. She had 8,000 retweets and 65,000 likes, which shows that's pretty mainstream, right? And although the criticism of her poured in from the usual suspects, the support for her tripled. I mean, I heard from people saying, look, I've never been a gun owner, but the criticism of these people who are just simply trying to exercise their rights, especially young women, is getting so out of hand that I think I might just join the NRA. I'm gonna go buy a gun for the first time because I can, and all these other people are criticizing my right to do so. So it's very clear to me that women are following right in the steps, the footsteps of Annie Oakley in more ways than one. A quick Google search and you'll find dozens of stories about women defending themselves and their families with all kinds of different firearms. And again, proving that choice is crucial. We hear a whole lot about what do you need? What should you be able to use to defend yourself? You don't need an AR-15 to defend yourself. You only need nine rounds of uh, an AK-57, which is not a real thing, by the way. They'll make something up and say that you don't need it. Um, protecting that choice and our ability to use what we, we, we believe is our best option is pretty crucial. The fastest growing population of new gun owners in America are women, and the number one reason cited by women for becoming a first-time gun owner is for self-defense purposes. Between 2001 and today, female target shooters have increased by 51%, and according to the National Shooting Sports Foundation, the most commonly owned firearm by women in, uh, in a study that they did is a semi-automatic pistol, with 56% of women reporting they owned at least one. Shotguns ranked second, with 50% saying, again, they had owned at least one. The majority of women report that they are not driven to buy a gun on impulse, even though I bought other things on impulse before, I'll admit that, but rather considered their purchase for months before deciding which firearm to buy. More than 42% of women have a concealed carry permit in their state of residence. Nearly three quarters, 73% of women, have reported taking at least one training class, and women are now leading men when it comes to obtaining concealed carry permits, which I think is awesome. In Utah, uh, nearly two-thirds of 2017's new concealed carry permits were issued to women. 75% of the new carry permits are not for men. You know, owning a gun is usually uh, classified or stereotyped as a dude thing. And that may have been true at one point, but it's certainly not anymore. And all of these numbers prove it. Um, you in this room prove it. I prove it. People I talk to every single day prove it. So these women are many of the 16.3 million concealed carry permit holders around the country. So the NRA is only six million members. There are 16 million concealed carry permit holders in the country, which shows that it goes beyond the NRA talking point. And again, according to NSSF, the rates of Americans qualifying for permits uh, increased from 240,000 annually just a decade ago to 1.8 million last year alone. That's a 150% increase, 10% increase. 
So three million Americans surve surveyed reported carrying firearms every single day. Every day someone is carrying. The same survey found that roughly nine million people carried handguns at least once a month. So you might not carry all the time, but you carry when you feel like maybe you're going to more of a dangerous neighborhood, you're more uncomfortable, or it's more convenient for you to carry because you're not allowed to carry in the city that you work in, that kind of thing. For example, I don't always carry in DC, but I do try to carry as much as possible in Virginia. Um, we've seen progress over the past few years, speaking of DC, right here. Uh, it's notoriously a city that has one of the strictest gun control policies in the country, but luckily the um, court system has knocked them down a few pegs in recent years to make it a little bit easier for law-abiding people to get their concealed carry permits. Um, a federal court recently ruled that the police department can't deny issuing a permit because they think that you don't live in a, in a dangerous enough neighborhood. So a couple of years ago, I applied for a concealed carry permit in Washington, DC. And this was before this court ruling came down. So I not only had to prove that there was a threat against me, I had an open FBI investigation on a stalker that went to federal trial. Um, I had to wait 100 days for it to get approved, and I had to pay $500 and had to go through um, numerous hours of training. Now, the training end of it, because I'd done other training that was uh, verified through um, police departments and sheriff's departments, was waived. But the amount of time and attention it took me to get a firearms permit when I had an open FBI criminal investigation on some guy who was threatening me, threatening my family, they could have cared less about that. Um, they're supposed to give you the permit in 90 days, make a decision. On day 100, they finally decided to make a decision about it. And they knew about the situation. They didn't care, which then again proves that the government's not looking out for your best interests, even when you have proof in front of them that it's essential for you to be able to protect yourself. So I'm happy to see now that um, they've knocked down this idea that you have to have a good reason that they decide living in a bad neighborhood is not good enough reason to need a concealed carry permit. Luckily, that a little bit of that is subsiding. But I just kept thinking, you know, I can afford the time to come here. I can afford to pay the money to come here. But I'm not a single mom living in a bad neighborhood trying to protect my kid who is working a minimum wage job, who can't afford the time to come here, who can't afford the fee to pay to simply abide by the law, right? So again, here's a situation where they're putting people into vulnerable situations through their policies. Um, but luckily it worked out okay, and we're starting to win that battle. So the ultimate question is, you know, what, you know, sexual assault is an issue that is different for men than it is for women. Um, and in my opinion, I think the best defense to that is a firearm. Some people disagree, that's my philosophy. Um, nearly 300,000 women use handguns every single year to defend themselves against sexual assault. And let's not forget that we recently see police in a bunch of different uh, major cities saying that they're no longer going to respond to less than pressing phone calls that come in on their 911 hotlines due to a lack of resources beyond their control. Now, let's think about that. The average response time for sexual assault in a city like Washington, D.C., is an hour. An hour. I'm not willing to wait that long, you know? I don't wait in line for anything. I'm not gonna wait in line for that. Like, no thank you. Um, and unfortunately, the left wants to make it harder for women to own a gun to prevent themselves from being in that situation. Um, so now we have all the kind of scary stuff out of the way. I do wanna stress that 
self-defense and crime prevention are clearly a factor here. You know, we're women, we think about it, it's a hot topic on college campuses, uh, we see it as a, a topic in the news all the time about how we handle the situation. Crime is an issue uh, in every major city that we go to, especially if you're a young woman living alone. Um, but the truth is that this isn't the only factor. Um, I used to write a column for Women's Outdoor News, and if you go to their website, you'll find dozens of pieces and videos and photos of women engaging in the shooting sports in their own way, whether it's through trap and skeet shooting, rimfire competition, three-gun competition, pistol competition, cowboy, steel matches, you name it. You know, it's all out there for you to explore and to engage in. And hunting is also a big part of that culture, um, although it doesn't fit into the Second Amendment was just made for hunting. It doesn't apply. Um, gun, gun ownership is about a community, and it's about one that I certainly fully embrace, and it's part of a culture that we should be celebrating. Um, I'm not in a sorority, um, but I kind of see the Second Amendment sisterhood as a big sorority that has constitutional implications. Um, you know, one of my coworkers had never shot a gun for the first time, so I took her to shoot a gun, and we left the range, and she was so excited, and the thing that she said to me, quote, is, I have never felt more empowered in my life than I did tonight. And that actually means something. You know, that can change how people feel about themselves, their outlook on life, their self-esteem, how they feel like they can carry themselves as an individual forward in the world that they want to live in. You know, my hairdresser, the girl who does my hair, she's so cute, um, she keeps asking me, begging me to take her to the shooting range because she's seen some of my photos and my videos. And she's never shot a gun before. She didn't grow up in a gun family. Um, she's like this cute, hip, stylish hairdresser. You know, she loves her job. And she's been asking me for six months to take her. And the weather's been bad, which is an excuse. Um, and the schedule's been busy. But she really wants to go. And it's because she's seen other women engage in the activity and going, I can do that too. This is not some scary, awful, male-only dominated thing. Like, I want to do that too. And I know people, I know other women who can take me to do that. Um, one of my best friends, her name is Natalie Foster. She runs a website called Girls Guide to Guns. And we actually met a couple years ago because she sent me some jewelry that she makes, it's nice, um, of handguns and rifles that you wear, necklaces. And we've been best friends ever since. It's like, you know, the jewelry thing is one thing, but you know, she came to my wedding. Um, she's one of my greatest friends. She's an advocate for other women like her. Um, her entire philosophy is getting more women involved. She does a show for NRA TV called Love It First Shot, and it's all about getting women involved for the first time in the shooting industry. She's amazing. Um, some of my best memories have been made on the range with my dad and my family and my mom, my brother. I've done a lot of training at Gunsight Academy in Arizona, which has been amazing because the people who own that place are conservatives, and they've become my second family when I'm out in Arizona, when I go to the NRA convention every year. Um, a couple of years ago, I went to um, the Smith & Wesson Indoor Nationals, which was in Connecticut, no, Massachusetts. Um, I had to go through Connecticut. I remember I had to borrow a gun because none of my guns were legal because I had, my magazines were too high capacity. So I had to borrow a gun that would actually qualify me to be in this match. But long story short, Julie Golub, who is this world-renowned, world champion shooter, um, one of the best, she'll go down in American history as one of the best female shooters and shooters, period, that ever walked on the planet. She just volunteered to be my coach for the day. And she took me around to all the stages, and I shot all day, and she let me borrow her gun and her belt and all this stuff. And it was just amazing. Um, and it, the people there, too, who were coaching us through the stages and showing us how to you know, maneuver different self-defense situations, 
that's the kind of community that I want to embrace and I want to be a part of. And it's opposite completely of what you hear about people like me and her through the media. Um, and it's also a part of American culture in terms of businesses, right? There are so many families who own gun stores and they pass it down to their kids or they're creating some firearm safety product that could actually be helpful um, in a lot of these situations that we're, we're dealing with. You see people volunteering their time to be gun safety experts to answer questions about really serious, tough topics that people have to, you know, discuss and live with in this day and age. You have people volunteering their time to be resource officers so that our schools can be safer. You know, these are the kinds of people who are in this community, and I think it's really important that we stand up for them and to stand up for the rights that they're trying to embrace as well. And so being a gun owner um, and a proud Second Amendment supporter isn't about being paranoid or living in fear. I get that all the time. Oh, you're just paranoid about everything happening in the world. And then when something happens, they're like, why didn't anyone prevent this from happening? It's like, well, I'm just being prepared as an individual on my level. I'm not paranoid. I'm not afraid. I just understand that this is the world I live in, not the world I want to live in, like some people. And I refuse to be a victim. Now, does that mean that nothing will ever happen? Absolutely not. But it's about being prepared and taking responsibility for your own safety and empowering yourself by choosing what's best for you, not for someone else, what's best for you, to protect what matters most, your life and your body, right? We always hear from the left about my body, my choice, don't, you know, this is my, my temple, it is. So why aren't we allowed to protect it in the way that we feel like we should? Nobody has the right to turn you into a victim. It is your body and your choice, and you should have the ability to protect it, period. So I think I'll take some of your questions. I think that maybe some of you have some. So we'll get to that. But thank you for listening to me today and for coming. And uh, I hope that if you have questions about getting to the range for the first time, that I can maybe answer some of those. And I would encourage you to get more involved. So anyway. <laughs> She's fine. She's green. Here. Good to see you again. Great to see you, too. <laughs> um, so why uh, do you think that this issue's become so polarized recently between Democrats and Republicans? So the guy who started my app, Chapter David King, he was a former NRA president. He wrote a book, um, and something struck me in it, where he mentioned that Democrats used to actually be NRA card carriers. Mm -hmm. sort of thing. What do you think has changed? Oh, I think the Democrat Party has just gone so far left. Um, and when you go farther left, you go towards totalitarianism, communism, socialism, and what that means is more government control. And if you're for more government control, bigger government, you can't have an armed citizenry because they're harder to control. Um, so in terms of you know, having that conversation, it, I think it is sad that we can't come to agreements on basic constitutional principles like the Second Amendment, um, and that we can't you know, broaden the tent. But I also would say, that I don't, while we have this far left factor that seems to be engulfing the entire political discussion, I would say that I, I think there are a lot of Democrats who do believe in their Second Amendment rights who aren't interested in this frothing at the mouth, accusing um, gun owners or Second Amendment supporters or NRA members, God forbid, of being just as bad as um, people who go into schools and murder children. I think that really turns a lot of people off, and I think if you look at the recent um, polling that we've seen that's come out of the March for Our Lives and the response to kids like, uh, or adults now, I should say, David Hogg, um, 
you know, with the boycotting and the, the endless um, criticism based on a different perspective and not offering actual real solutions at a local level to protect schools, um, people aren't actually changing their minds on the issue. Um, so I would say that that's a silver lining in that case. So, mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, thank you very much for your presentation. Okay, there we go. <laughs> yeah, there we go, thank you. <laughs> Uh, so when you were describing your experience growing up uh, w with firearms, it kind of reminds me of uh, me playing sports. Mm -hmm. I knew that it was empowering and it was more in the public sphere. So my question is, if like gun competitions became more uh, public, mainstream, like, like with yeah, mainstream with, with children and, and teenagers. I, I don't know about age, but like, yeah, you know, do you think that that would you know conjure up an environment that would be more like uh, considerate of firearms rather than... Yeah, you know, we actually saw this happen about uh, almost a decade ago now with that show Top Shot that came out, and it was a competition show. I think it was on A&E, and it was, a, it was a shooting competition show on a mainstream network. Um, I've always wondered why these shooting competitions aren't televised like the Olympic shooting is, because it's really fun to watch. It's exciting. Um, I think just because it's not as mainstream in terms of the types of structure and... Um, production value that they can get out of it, that it may be a little more difficult. But I think getting into the culture is absolutely essential, and not in a way where, you know, Hollywood is promoting the illegal handling of firearms, the unsafe, you know. The thing is, is a lot of these people who um, are against firearms, I actually know someone who grew up in New York, and he grew up in Brooklyn, and the only people he knew in Brooklyn who had guns were bad guys, right? He's a product of his environment. But once he moved to Virginia, he actually started to realize like, wait, I can own a gun and I can defend myself and I know all these other people who own guns and they're normal law-abiding people. And actually I'm really pro-gun now because I'm realizing that I was in an environment where the only people, the culture was there were, were criminals who had guns, right? So I think you know, bringing it into more of a mainstream and televising those competitions and bringing the kids is, is really important for the future of, of the Second Amendment. Thank you for speaking to us. Um, like you mentioned, like my kids' school I go to, they are constantly like, preaching to us about like how to recognize like when sexual assault is happening and how to prevent it and how to defend yourself. They actually have this class like self-defense for women and I took it and they didn't um, tell us a single time about using a gun mm -hmm. or exercising our rights. And um, like you said, like many women take classes at night and have to walk home. Do you think it would be beneficial for women who have challenge like carrying on campuses to prevent sexual assault? Yeah, and the first argument they're going to make is the majority of sexual assault is not you getting pulled into an alley and raped. They're going to say the majority of sexual assault, and this may be true, but it doesn't downplay the other end of the spectrum here. They're going to say the majority of sexual assault happens um, when someone's been drinking too much and they're taken advantage of, or when consent isn't clear uh, late night at a party. Um, that may be true, but this idea that you are then not going to allow women who do have to walk in the dark who do go in, you know, alone into places, you're going to deny them the ability um, to protect themselves and defend themselves, is pretty egregious. Um, I was on a college campus a couple weeks ago um, in Rochester and, Rochester, New York, and 
I told the story about Amanda Collins, who has also spoken for uh, Claire Ruth Luce, and she was a student at the University of Nevada, Reno, and she was walking home after a night class in a parking garage, and a guy grabbed her, raped her. Um, she could see the police uh, cruisers sitting there 50 feet away from her, but they were all closed, so they weren't going to help her. That guy went on to kill, or raped another woman and killed another. And she, at the time, had her concealed carry permit in her purse, but she didn't have her gun because she wasn't allowed due to university policy to carry a firearm on campus. Um, and she always talks about how she was legislated to be a victim, and they installed call boxes afterwards to try and mitigate the problem, and they allowed her to carry a firearm on campus so long as she didn't tell anybody about it. So they gave her her Second Amendment rights back, but they stripped her of her First Amendment rights. Um, so this idea that, you know, because sexual assault falls into the categories that they think are relevant, um, they're trying to make your story irrelevant. Um, I had a girl who's a feminist leftist come up to me after I told that story, and she actually said to me, I'm actually offended that you told that story because that's not the way that majority of rapes happen on campus. And th exactly, it's like, well, how do I even respond to that? Um, my response was, was pulling a lefty and saying, are you discrediting her story and denying the facts of this situation? How, would you, how dare you question a survivor's story? But really, um, so yes, I would say that you should advocate for your rights. Uh, your rights as a woman, uh, your rights as an American, don't stop at the university campus line. Um, there have been a number of universities across the country that allow students to conceal carry. They have had zero incidents because they'll make the argument that, well, it's going to be the wild, wild west and students can't control themselves and they just get drunk all the time and blah, blah, blah. Um, that's been proven untrue multiple times. So yes, I would advocate for what you think is best and absolutely you deserve to be carrying firearms on campus. You're an adult. When do we become adults? We're rather capable adults going to college or we're not. Pick one. Right. Um, but things like suppressors that have been kind of uh, painted a certain way by Hollywood and, and for so many different reasons, it's really difficult to get things like suppressors passed and, and really comply with so many different um, things in the student world. Right. Yeah, things the way they really are. Facts, amazing, right? Um, I think that you know you can't blame people for not knowing something they've never been told, or for being told something that is untrue. So, it's our responsibility to educate people about what actually is, right? So, um, Diane Feinstein, who is the ranking member on the Senate Judiciary Committee, and one of the most well, she used to be one of the most liberal members of Congress, but now she's being primaried on the left in California. If you can imagine that. Um, she's one of the most anti-gun, anti-Second Amendment members of Congress. Um, she claimed um, that suppressors, or she called them silencers, she said that they completely silenced the gun, made a bunch of all, you know, a bunch of these other uh, false claims about how police can't hear them when they go off, so therefore they can be used in more crimes, they're not used in crimes, um, et cetera, et cetera. She made a bunch of false claims on her Twitter feed. I pointed it out, and the Washington Post fact checker not exactly a bastion of conservative ideology, um, picked it up and gave her four Pinocchios for lying about 
suppressors and silencers. Um, they're actually technically suppressors. Um, so I think that was a victory, right? Because here's a mainstream audience learning about suppressors and how they're not just used to take out mobsters in the movies. Um, they're actually used for legitimate purposes. Um, they're used for veterans, for disabled people, um, to make sure that hearing loss is not something that, that goes on. So um, I think really talking about the facts of what we know, because once we do that, people look at the situation logically. As I just talked about with all the, the polling that's come out after the last three months of all this gun control activity, needle hasn't really moved much. Um, and that's because once people dig into this issue and, and really see things for way, the way that they are, they realize that the hysteria really is pretty unfounded. So, if you can get through a conversation, I would suggest that. I know it's difficult these days. Hello. Hello. Um, okay, so my question is, there's been a, a lot of like mass shootings in, in high schools recently, and um, I guess as a Second Amendment uh, supporter, how do you suggest uh, we stop shootings without taking away guns? Um, and also, what do you think the root cause of uh, the uptick in these are? Well, I think those are very broad topics, but I'll give you a few specific answers. So to answer your second question first, um, what is the root cause of what's going on? Um, in America, we have always had guns. Uh, my grandpa used to drive to downtown Milwaukee, Wisconsin with his rifle in the back of his truck, go to school, and then he would go um, hunting after school. Um, that's a normal story for a lot of American families. We didn't have mass shootings in the way that we, we do now um, until about the 1970s, 1980s. And I think that the root cause is um, on a social, social societal level. I think it's a problem with discipline. I think it's a problem with families being broken up. I think it's uh, an issue of people feeling secluded and alone and wanting attention. Um, you know, there's a reason why a, a lot of these um, perpetrators are posting now on social media and saying, I'm gonna be the next guy and I'm gonna see myself on the news. Um, so I think that there are deep societal problems that have arisen uh, in the past couple of decades that haven't necessarily been addressed that have caused um, a slight increase in school shootings. Now, if you look at the past 10 years, despite all of the, the media hype, I read an article in NPR the other day about how uh, teachers, students, and parents should actually feel a little bit better because mass shootings aren't necessarily on the rise, we're just covering them more heavily. Now, that doesn't make them better, um, but it, it does separate fact from fiction when it comes to whether this is an epidemic in the country, as many people like to say when they're commenting in the aftermath of these things without all of the facts. Um, what is the solution? There is no one-size-fits-all policy for any of these situations. Every school is different. Every school's um, demographic is different. The teachers are different. A school in Arizona is going to be very different than a school in New York City. So local is the only way that you can ever actually get anything done. Um, the Texas governor, Greg Abbott, just came out with a lengthy report and plan on how they're going to approach school safety in the aftermath of the Santa Fe um, high school shooting. And the way they had approached it, I thought, was really important because they sat down with the people on the ground who were actually involved, law enforcement officials, gun safety experts, parents, teachers, students, um, and they talked about all of the different things that they can do that are effective to harden their schools, to be more effective in um, when kids are reaching out for help to help them. They really covered a lot of the bases. It wasn't just like, oh, armed teachers, or we need more mental health funding. It was 
a comprehensive plan about how to do all of those things, um, but it was localized and specific to what they can do in Texas. Um, and I also think that, you know, look, if you're a teacher and you are, you know, you always hear about training, um, I can guarantee you people who regularly carry firearms are a lot more trained than uh, a lot of security officers that I've met, uh, to be honest. And if they want to go through the training and not be a sitting duck in their classroom, uh, my dad's been a teacher for 30 years and he's been a hunter safety education instructor for 30 years and he has to sit in a classroom every single day as a sitting duck with nothing to defend himself or his students with. So I think that they should be able to make that choice if they want to. No one should be forced to, but you should be able to, just like you would in your home. So you just mentioned sitting ducks and that conundrum. On my campus, we don't have concealed carry because I go to school in DC, so we're taking baby steps and we're trying to get our police force armed because in the case of a problem on campus, they have absolutely nothing. What is this, London? Use. We fought a war over that. <laughs> yeah. So our actual police force has no way of you know, making sure that the law is being followed if there was a compromising situation. But in response to the letter we sent to administration trying to give them training to arm them so that they would be able to have firearms, different communities on campus came together saying that they were scared of the police force, afraid, they racialized the issue, and they actually said that it was against gay people, I think. So in, in a case where people are trying their hardest to become victims, how do you yeah, explain that's true. to them, or at least to start explaining to them that guns can equalize. These are people who truly have only first world problems. <laughs> like, to say that the, the police force is going to be anti-gay when gays are victims of hate crimes on a regular basis is just insane. It just doesn't compute logically, but I guess we're not dealing in logic. Um, yeah, that's a difficult situation to be in. Um, I think the proper argument you make in return is, yeah, the police force is a government entity, and I don't want big government either. So why don't we focus on individual people being able to defend themselves, and that way you have your own control about your own situation. And each person takes it individually, and then you don't have to rely on a police force to decide you know, whether or not they're going to engage in racial discrimination, which I'm sure is something that they, they brought up as one of their concerns. Um, so if that really is one of their concerns, is expanding the size and the scope of government, you can take that to your advantage and say, I completely agree, why don't we do it this way and let it be a local, individualized, liberty-driven initiative instead and see what they say. But I think you have a really good point about them wanting to be professional victims. It pays really well to be a victim, uh, especially in the short term. Um, but long term, it's a miserable way to live. So if you can just explain that to them, um, that would probably be a good first start. So um, I went to Holy Cross last year and we had a big school walkout um, in response to the Parkland shootings in March. And my professor, I did not participate in the walkout, and my professor came back to class and she led us in this reflection and she told us to quote, breathe in love and breathe out guns. Okay. I don't understand what that means, but. It, it literally <laughs> means nothing. Like that means nothing. It solves nothing, it's stupid, it means nothing, it's not gonna prevent anything, it's just idiotic. Okay, cool, that's what I was thinking too. Okay, good. Um, so then everybody was going on, like I was just sitting there and everyone was in this like massive NRA rant. So mm -hmm. I just like, hated everything and everybody. 
So obviously, I agree with what you're saying about how it really is a result of the family breakdown and mm -hmm. everything that's gone on the last few decades. But clearly, they're not really going to listen to that, and that takes a really long time right. to explain. So do you have any suggestions on like how to put, put your opinion across in a kind of concise way without launching into what's gone wrong in the last 35 years? I think you just personalize it. You say, because they, they generalize right on this issue. You say, well, I'm a gun owner. Do you think that about me? Because that's not how I am. And then they're like, oh, no. Like, yeah, this person, this human being sitting in front of me is, is not what I've just said, necessarily. And so if you can talk about who you are and what you believe in and say, you know, I'm not like that. I don't know where you got that perspective from. Um, I think it's unfortunate that that's what you think about all people who believe in these things. But I'm one of those people. and. And I would say that I, I am not like that. And I know a lot of people who aren't. Let me introduce you to them. I'll take you to a range. Let's, let's go out. I'll take you shooting once. And offer these kind of firsthand experiences so that they can see for themselves that what they've been told and what they don't know um, isn't necessarily true. Because so, their goal is to dehumanize you so that it's not a factor. But if you're standing in front of them going, OK, like I'm a woman. I'm not, you know, I like guns. And I'm not a crazy serial killer or a school shooter. And it's fine, so why are you accusing me of that? Then it puts the onus back on them to prove what they're saying is true. First of all, please bear down. Yes, bear down. No sun devils here, right? Oh, there aren't any. <laughs> we never say sorry about that. <laughs> so I have just have one question. Where's your favorite shooting range in Virginia? Oh, in Virginia. My favorite shooting range is actually in West Virginia. It's called 340 uh, Defense, and it's this outdoor shooting range. So it's really great. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> All right, time for a couple more. Yeah, that's really fancy, though. It's very nice. Yeah, it's really nice. What I was going to say was a very, very, very quick background. So I shot 200 rifles. Oh, here we go. It's a pro. Where are you from? Um, I'm American, but I, lived, I grew up in Virginia. Oh, okay, cool. So I moved back here. I was excited. I could shoot. Um, I started shooting the third rifle. I went to my first national comp competition in sixth grade. So awesome. I got a sweatshirt. It was the national matches, which was actually started um, as part of the War Department of Population Control. And I wore my sweatshirt to school, and the teacher said, hey, you need to see it. <sighs> and I went out to the hallway and said, we need to take your sweatshirt off. You can't wear that. And for me, who had just, I was super excited, I was yeah. in school, it was horrible. And, yeah. and for people that want to kind of share the good side of, of firearms and teach other students at the middle school, high school, elementary school level, how can they accomplish that when the school system is just cutting into them? And how can we kind of teach people about the Second Amendment in a, in a positive way? Well, you have to tell people what happened. Right, so you're right about the structure and the hierarchy of the school system being horrible. The funny thing I think about these teachers and deans and professors who do these things to students like you is that they're essentially breeding rebels because it makes you want to wear the shirt and to get active and to teach people about the things that you believe in because they're wrong. And they're actually always talking about oppression, but they're oppressing you and what you believe in. So, okay, sure, you take the sweatshirt off because you're at school and you're forced to do that as a high school, middle school uh, student. But then you go tell your friends what happened. 
and you talk about it to the other kids in your school about, look, I had the sweatshirt on, this is where I got the sweatshirt, I was so excited about it, this is what I did to earn it, and for some reason, the dean thinks it's weird that I'm wearing it, even though it's this really cool competition that I won. So you have to tell, it's not just, you can't just go through the system, you have to do it person to person and talk to people who are your peers so that they can better understand like, yeah, that's really awesome that you won that competition. Why did they make you take the sweatshirt off? Because when you're that age, or when you're young in general, you don't want anyone telling you what to do. So whether it's you're on the right or the left, if you can use that to your advantage and have that conversation with your peers and talk about what happened, I think that's a good first step. But I completely understand the frustration with um, the teachers, the professors, completely trying to control the environment and stamping out different viewpoints. So, And the good thing now is that there's so much social media and outlets that you can actually leak the story to, and they can tell the story publicly, and that kind of puts a little more pressure on um, these these schools who are getting sued left and right for um, stampeding on the First Amendment rights of students like you. So, don't know if that's helpful, but that's what I would suggest. Michelle. <laughs> My parents weren't sure if I was going to graduate college because I would go on the radio every single week and talk about all of the liberal things they were doing with our money. And I would talk about the things that the professors were saying in class on the radio. Um, my name was U of A Katie, so I had a, a disguised name, but they were always afraid I was going to get found out. So I would talk about the egregious things they were doing uh, every single week for an hour. It was great. <laughs> so expose them. Go ahead. What a great talk. I have a question, it's a little, something you haven't really mentioned, but I've been dying to ask you, I haven't seen you in so long. First I, one of the first times I knew about you was when you wrote a book mm -hmm. about the scandal, Fast and Furious, and it was a giant cover-up by the Democrats, but most of these ladies probably don't know about it. I wonder if you would just talk about what that was. Your book was fabulous. Thank you. Where, what happened to that? I mean, we're in charge now, aren't we? Yes, we are in charge. And why aren't we doing what you said you would have done? Yeah. So uh, Michelle is graciously plugging my first book for me, which I appreciate very much. Uh, a long time ago now, I feel like. But um, I moved to Washington, D.C. in 2010, um, got on the ground running with my journalism career, um, just worked really hard going to hearings, um, doing all kinds of stuff, and then this scandal started breaking called Operation Fast and Furious, and it was out of Arizona. And what had happened, long story short, is the Justice Department, under Barack Obama and Eric Holder, were purposely trafficking thousands of guns to Mexican cartels. And the reason we found out about it is because a Border Patrol agent in Arizona, where I'm from, um, was killed by um, a RIP crew, which is a, a cartel crew, um, with one of those guns. And they covered it up, they lied about it, they lied about the operation. Um, they were sending thousands of firearms to narco-terrorists who were then using them to murder innocent civilians. They murdered hundreds of people. And in the years after that, we kept seeing these guns showing up at crime scenes in America because they were coming back over the border. Um, ATF bullied gun stores in Arizona into participating in this program, saying, look, this guy's going to come in, he's going to buy uh, 40 AK-47s, and he's going to give you cash, and just let him buy them. Like, just push, we'll push through the background check, we're going to watch what he does with them, um, we're trying to figure out who he's selling them to or who he's giving them to. Our goal is to get to the top levels of the cartel. So these gun stores are like, guys, 
you're making a sell to like these dudes who are working for Mexican cartels. Like, are you sure they're not trafficking them back over the border and that people aren't getting hurt, et cetera, et cetera. And keep in mind, the ATF decides if these gun stores are gonna stay open because they are in charge of their licensing. So they don't really have a choice about whether to participate. It's like, oh, they you know, dangle their license out in front of them and say, you sure you don't wanna participate in this government program that we're doing that's probably gonna get people killed? Oh no, well, maybe we just won't renew your license, which is the way you feed your family. Um, so long story short, I wrote a book about this because at the time that they were purposely trafficking thousands of guns into Mexico, um, they were in the press, in, Washington, in the Washington Post, working with their investigative reporters about this iron river that was going from the United States into Mexico and how the U.S. needed more gun control because we were the ones responsible. Gun stores in Arizona were responsible for the murder and mayhem and the bloodshed in Mexico. And then when all this got exposed, the very same dealers that the ATF officials were naming as the culprits of selling these guns, right, illegally, were the ones who were forced into selling them on behalf of the government. And so that's what it was about. Um, Michelle asked, you know, about the, the consequences. People weren't fired, they were promoted, who were involved. Uh, the whistleblowers who were exposing what was going on, you know, their lives were, were ruined. Um, and nobody was really held accountable for what happened, which is really unfortunate because the family of Brian Terry who was killed never really got a lot of answers. Um, they ultimately found all the guys in Mexico who, who uh, carried out the murder, which is good, put them in jail. But as far as holding government officials accountable, um, it didn't really happen. Eric Holder became the first sitting attorney general in history to be held in contempt of Congress, uh, both civilly and criminally by Republicans and Democrats. So when he says he wants to run in 2020, I, I find that quite interesting. Um, so the bottom line is they were forcing law-abiding, genuine, you know, good, good, genuine American gun shop owners to sell thousands of guns to Mexican cartels, and then they blame them for the aftermath of what they did with them. Um, they lied about it. They said they were going to track them. Out of you know 2,500 guns, they put two GPS recording devices in them. So the whole thing was a lie from the beginning. Um, and then when they got caught because someone got killed on our side of the border, um, they covered the entire thing up. And it was like two years of congressional hearings and an inspector general report, and it was a lot. Um, so unfortunately, there hasn't really been much consequence for that. Um, so maybe there will be someday. You can always hope. All right, I think we're done. I think I see my new intern, Katie, in the back. Good to see you. <laughs> okay, thank you guys very much. Enjoy your weekend and have a good time. See you later.